um, and thank you for the chance to speak here. I think this is one of the, actually I ended up not doing all as many trips out of from Santa Cruz as I planned to. I think there are lots of good reasons to be in Santa Cruz. But this is actually the one major trip I'm doing away because I know that this is one of the best uh, theoretical uh, active environments in, in the country, and this is where I would like to discuss my, my thoughts, so I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Um, usually, I kind of, at least implicitly, has to have to apologize for, for being Dane when I speak in any IR audience in the sense that at best I can be seen as some kind of uh, member of the global slash U.S. discipline of international relations, but a somewhat handicapped one because I speak the language poorly, and I don't have the inside knowledge of someone who grew up in the real country of the discipline. But just for once, I feel that it might actually have some, might at least be somewhat interesting that I'm coming from Denmark. And the reason for that, of course, is the recent uh, almost global crisis over the Muhammad cartoons published in a Danish newspaper that sparked uh, a lot, all kind of violence and, and, and uh, crisis all over the Middle East, and it was seen actually in Denmark as the biggest foreign policy crisis of Denmark since World War II. Um, so someone might even find my uh, silly little country interesting just for once, and if someone has specific questions about the background for why, I don't think it was coincidence that it happened in Denmark. So if someone wants to inquire into why we do such things, uh, you could, you're welcome to do that in the discussion. I'm not going to talk specifically about the cartoon story here, but it's uh, I think, closely related, actually, to what I'm doing. But the cartoon conflict created a dilemma for me in making this presentation because I faced then the same dilemma as the press has been facing. Whenever you talk about it, should you then show the pictures or not? So whenever I start dealing with this, should I then have, would I have to skip my usual PowerPoints because otherwise would have to include the cartoons, or should I not include the cartoons and then be guilty of blah, 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 blah. So I've made the compromise of sticking to the PowerPoints and including only one of the cartoons. And you know the story, of course, that Danish newspaper Julius Posten asked a question to all cartoonists in the country, more or less, uh, draw Mohammed as you see him. Um, and as you can see, oh, now I can't see my notes. <laughs> Is there a way around this? Uh, right. Um, as you can see here, this is not the prophet. Um, so this is really treating, cheating in relation to the dilemma of this. The, the, the Mohammed on this drawing is a seventh grader from Valby, a suburb of Copenhagen. And as you see here, his comment to the cartoons is, the journalists at Posten, the newspaper, are a bunch of reactionary provocateurs. Um, why it's written in Farsi uh, with Arabic letters is beyond me, uh, but my knowledge of Danish soccer, on the other hand, is great enough that I can see that the shirt his wearing is the shirt of the local soccer team in Valby, which has the name Fram, which means forward, and it says the future on it. So really the message of this drawing is that Mohammed here is really the future of Denmark, which is true that uh, immigration-wise and so on, he is the future of uh, the country, and Mohammed actually has been on the top 50 of Danish names for several years and so on. And I think that actually tells us something that is crucial for understanding the European side of the religion security dynamics. And that is that uh, it's a key dynamic that Muslims are simultaneously the main immigrant group in Europe and a major foreign policy issue. It's a very trivial thing, but it's a major contrast to the US in the sense that immigration issue and religious issues don't coincide here. The, 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 the heart of the migration question 
here is Hispanics and the conflict over the border to Mexico and all that. Uh, and the most controversial religion here is Islam, too. Whereas in Europe, the most controversial immigration, immigrant group is Muslims, and the most controversial religion is Islam. And I think that link between domestic and international security is a key to understanding what is happening to Europe. And I'm going to argue in this talk that understanding the European part of the picture in relation to religion, security issues, might actually be more interesting than one tends to think, and that it actually might even tell us something about the U.S. too. So there's a kind of European detour involved in this, and I am, in that sense, presenting a view from Europe on the issue. At first, I saw this as a drawback. When I started preparing for giving this talk, I really realized, looking at my notes from a talk I'd given numerous times in Europe, that I couldn't say this. The whole talk was rather polemical, constructed as me engaged in ongoing debates in Europe, playing the role of the person criticizing the kind of hardline, self-assured secularism in, in Europe and saying, we, we, we all over about this secular country. And then think, but what will happen if I say this in, in Ohio? It will sound nonsensical in a setting where there's a lot of religious politics going on at the same time. So a lot of you, so I'll get around this by saying, please, for the first half, assume that I'm only talking about Europe, basically, and don't worry about the fact that it doesn't fit the U.S. And then after that, I'll tell you that it actually fits the U.S. after all, as well, uh, and that America, after all, is much more secularist than you might think. Uh, just think of yourself. Um, first, I'll start out with a few words about the theoretical framework that is partly active in the presentation and partly just lurking in the background, and that is... Uh, as was already said in the presentation, the Copenhagen School, the theory of uh, situationization. So just in very few words, what is this? Oh, this is the outline. Uh, better skip that because I was just told I'll be talking a little shorter than I had assumed, so I'll probably go very fast on some of this down here, which is mainly the kind of polemical European part. Um, securitization. This is basically a theory of security arguing that whereas security studies traditionally talk about threats as something that objectively exists out there, assuming that the task of the security analyst is to measure how dangerous are what issues really and what should we do about them, uh, the focus of securitization theory is how security issues are produced, how is it that something is made a security issue, and the claim here is that what is at stake in security politics is basically games around trying to lift certain issues above normal politics and say, this is more urgent than everything else. This we can't leave to normal politics because there's an existential threat involved here and is not on the same level as other things because unless we deal with this, we will not be here to deal with the other things. So this has to take priority. There's a kind of necessity involved. We have to do certain things. And therefore, I, who talk about this threat, have a right to do extraordinary things like violence, secrecy, wiretapping, whatever, things I couldn't do on normal issues, but I can do it because it's a security issue. This is a theory that has become more easy to present in the U.S. in the last years than it used to be. Uh, I think it's quite easy to observe those kind of dynamics of taking extreme measures as soon as you can argue that something is a threat. So the key for, to security, in my view, is this move that takes politics uh, beyond the normal uh, game. 
and it typically has these factors involved. There's a referent object. What is it that is threatened? What is it that has to survive? There's a securitizing actor. Who is it who claims this? Uh, is it a state actor? Is it Greenpeace saying the environment is threatened and therefore we have a right to take extreme measures? Um, is it a nationalist group who claims that the nation is threatened by immigration and therefore we have to do this and that and so on? There's an audience. Who is it you have to convince about this and thereby gain a right to use those extreme measures? And then there's functional actors which don't have to interest it that much at the moment. This is a theory which was originally aimed very much as the kind of widening of security, saying security is not only about military issues, because you see we can do this thing on other threats as well. You can depict an economic threat, an environmental threat, and so forth. But it doesn't mean that everything becomes security. It doesn't mean the wider concept of security that everything that is not nice is a security threat. It only becomes a security issue if someone goes out and constructs politically the issue as an existential threat and thereby gives it this urgency and drama and priority and so on. So this is enough about the theory because basically that tells you why I'm interested in religion and how I'm interested in religion. I want to understand what difference it makes that those issues at stake have to do with religion. Because you can say we have these different sectors of security. Do they operate alike? No, they don't. It makes a difference whether you are in the societal sector and what is at stake is a nation defined in terms of identity or whether, say, you are in the economic sector or it's a firm that is at stake because there are different kinds of dynamics that are triggered if you think about, for instance, identity. To secure an identity raises particular challenges because identity is an art self-referential concept where as soon as you are insecure about an identity, the more you talk about it, the more insecure you become, and so on. There are particular dynamics of the different sectors. So my question is, what if it's religion? What is particular for conflicts where it's religion that is at stake in security issues? This is my, the main theoretical context of this. Another one, which is more to get me towards the policy issue, a second IR theoretical inspiration comes from um, Herbert Butterfield, uh, and I'll start out with a long quote from Herbert Butterfield, the great English historian and one of the founders of the so-called English School in IR, who wrote in 1950 in an article called The Tragic Element in Modern International Conflicts, this long quote. In the midst of battle, while we are all of us in fighting mood, we see only the sins of the enemy and fail to reflect on those predicaments and dilemmas which so often develop and which underlie the great conflicts between masses of human beings. While there is battle and hatred, men have eyes for nothing save the fact that the enemy is the cause of all the troubles. But long, long afterwards, when all passions have been spent, the historian often sees that it was a conflict between one half-right that was perhaps too, perhaps too willful and another half-right that was perhaps too proud. And behind, behind even this, he discerns that it was a terrible predicament which had the effect of putting men so at cross-purposes with one another. He goes on to deduce from this that writing of history, this is a kind of historiographic article, typically proceeds through two phases. First, you have a heroic phase where the whole story about, is about we are good, they are evil, that's why there is a conflict. But whereas you, if you write about, that's the way you write about contemporary things, but when you write about the 17th century, you don't write like that. When you write about the 17th century, you try to write about the structure of the conflict, the dynamic of the conflict, and you can see 
that really it wasn't about one being totally good and the other being totally bad. There was a dynamic that where they were driving each other, and therefore he says history goes through two phases. The first is the heroic writing style. The second is the tragic one. Tragic because you can see how the conflict itself was really, as in Greek tragedy, the, the setup was really the evil part. You were in a situation where conflict was in one sense both unavoidable and unnecessary at the same time, that the parties would drive each other into something that none of them wanted and so on. He continues in a second uh, passage uh, to say that uh, you yourself may vividly feel, I just, yeah, I have that one here. feel the terrible fear that you have of the other party, but you cannot enter into the other man's counter fear or understand why he should be nervous. For you know that you want nothing from him save guarantees from your own safety. That's a classical IR quote to illustrate the argument about the security dilemma. This is really one of the two original formulations of the so-called security dilemma. The point being, you understand why you are afraid, but it's very hard to understand why anyone would fear you because you know what you're up to, but the other one can't know what you know about yourself. Okay, it's no coincidence, of course, that Butterfield writes this in 1950. It's, of course, because he predicted or felt that the world was heading for a major conflict that would more or less run away with the world, which then happened for the following 40 years in the shape of the Cold War. And when I put this quote to frame this, it's, of course, in a somewhat dramatic way to suggest that there might be a real risk that we are at the same place, that we are heading into another conflict with the same structure where we see why we are threatened, but we can't understand how the other party can be threatened by us. And the conflict that I'm talking about here is the one between the West and radical Islam or radical Islamism. And this is what I'm going to mainly to talk about uh, today. And the first issue I'll deal with is whether this is a religious war or what it really is, what it is that the fundamentalists are afraid of, and use securitization theory to give us a better understanding of the conflict dynamics. This will lead into some discussions of secularism, uh, and finally to some analytical strategies for getting on with this. But maybe before that, just briefly uh, remind us of something that maybe has been said already in this context, that it's striking how bad our discipline of international relations has been at dealing with religion. Of course, we have all kinds of policy-oriented writings, especially after 9-11, about terror and fundamentalism and so on. You almost can't publish a book these days without putting those words in the title, whatever it's about. But really looking at the theories, they have found it very hard to accommodate religion. That is partly a general effect of the social sciences, that the social sciences are wedded to the whole secularist, enlightenment, optimistic assumption that we are on the side of reason and uh, religion is part of superstition and part of what will eventually go away and so on. So secularization is built into the social sciences in general. But probably, particularly for IR, IR probably has a very extra strong kind of double version of that. We are not only secularists the same way the other social sciences. We have the specific Westphalian inclination to deny religion because, in some sense, our basic object of study is the international system is constituted by the Peace of, of Westphalia, 1648, creating the modern state system, sovereignty, and all that. And what exactly was it that uh, 
Westphalia was about. It was about bringing an end to the 30 years war and attempting to create an order where religion was removed from international politics to end a period where you could war over religion. So religion in that set is absent from international relations, not because we have just kind of underestimated it. It's not just something we can correct by giving a little more attention. It's absent because it should be absent. It's absent because of an underlying assumption that it's dangerous to put religion in the picture. As soon as you put religion into the picture of international relations, you have wars all over. So the religion is, in that sense, a kind of structural blindness of the discipline. And therefore, there's been a tendency uh, for the discipline to always explain away religion as really something else. It might look like religion, but really, the realists would say, it's just power politics. Uh, cynical politicians use whatever argument they can. Milosevic used to be a communist. <laughs> then he became a nationalist. And if he stayed in power long enough, he would have been very religious and so on. Uh, it doesn't really matter. The underlying dynamic is the same, whatever they call it. Or the slightly more uh, seemingly uh, more open uh, would be to say, well, it's identity. We spent the 90s coming to term with ethnic conflicts. We know how to study identity now. And what's the difference if you say, we Croats or we Muslims is still identity? And then thirdly, you would have an argument that it's a question of de development. Identity is probably the strongest challenge here, but in my view, it's not good enough. To say that it's a we group is true, but that's a kind of secondary effect. Whenever you have a religious uh, dynamic, you have people who end up being a group, but their first issue is not the group. The first issue of concern is the religious one. It's about faith and God and salvation and whatever, depending on exactly what religion it is. And in that sense, the, the, the first relationship uh, is a vertical one between you and God and your own faith and so on. And then as a derived effect, a community might form of those who believe in the same thing. So you have an identity group as a kind of secondary phenomenon, whereas an identity group is formed around the group. It's about the group. You defend we Croats because you believe in the community of Croats. Uh, so in that sense, to treat religion as identity is to study its second most feature, but not the original one. So it becomes a corollary to functional, functionalist theory of religion, uh, looking at the effects of religion, but not religion as religion. So this is point number one of the ones arguments I'm going to make today. It's important that we keep religion as religion in the picture, not only religion in its various derived effect, which we generally tend to do. My, my second point I'm going to uh, build towards now, which is the central one probably, is what kind of conflict is it we are facing? Is this about um, wars of religion, or is it about conflicts or um, wars against religion in some sense. The word religion appears with increasing regularity in contemporary security affairs. Many conflicts are interpreted as being about religion or driven by groups of strong faith. This is the case for groups in the Middle East, the relationship between the Middle East and the West, but also domestically in a lot of countries, including the most populous one in the world, China, India, US, Indonesia. So in some sense, religion is becoming the great common denominator for world politics. So it's quite important to understand it correctly. And the quick and expedient categorization of all of this would be as wars of religion, or in a contemporary term, class of civilizations. 
This is wrong, in my view. But it's not strange that we see it like that. It's kind of a reflex reaction to putting the terms religion and conflict in the same sentence to say, oh, it's a religious war. This is part of our whole history. It's true that our modern language of politics was shaped in the wake of the religious wars in Europe. We have experience of crusades and both in and out of Europe and so on. So this combination saying conflict with religion, oh yeah, you're talking about religious wars, is an understanding reacting reaction, but it's misleading in my view. If you look at the world today, very few conflicts are actually about, um, about one religion against another one. So if you look at how issues of religion are securitized, what are the actual dynamics of who is seeing what as threatened by what? There are some cases where you can say this is one religion against another one. There's an element of that in South Asian politics. Increasingly, the Israel-Palestine conflict is moving in that direction, possibly. Uh, but basically, most of the conflict where religion is at stake are not shaped like that, but rather by one side fearing for the influence of religion and saying religious politics is dangerous, it ruins the secular state, and so on. And another side saying the secular state is what makes religion impossible. Notice what I'm focusing on here is not secularization as such, but rather secularism. And secularism is, as the name indicates, an ism in the sense that it's a program for how things should be. It's an ism saying that we should separate religion and politics, um, that we need to have politics free of religion, and we should also protect religion against politics. And ultimately, there's the Westphalian argument under that, that this is the only way to ensure peace. So my claim is that secularism is really at stake in these conflicts as one side uh, more than, that is a more accurate picture than seeing it as a conflict between religions. And again, the main case to look at would be radical Islamists. They are engaged in a war not against another religion, but against anti-religion. Their faith is about to be quashed by modernity. The godless, amoral state does not do its job of protecting against sin and decadence. And actually, Western culture is seen as encouraging all kinds of deprivation. So the true practice and life conduct needs a state which is not empty and rational and secular, but is filled with values and content in that sense, which is exactly what the secularist sees as the most dangerous thing, because that is an inner link between religion and politics. So this is a, basically a dangerous security constellation, because you have two parties that fear exactly that which the other one fights to defend, that one defends religion against secularism, and the other one defends secularism against religion. So we are close to the butterfield situation with the typical effect that we only see one side of it. It is easy to see why we would fear fundamentalists and radical religious movements, but why would the fundamentalists fear us? And this, I think, they very much do in a security mode. So this is my third point, that fundamentalism is security policy. This is something which is very clear in the whole literature on fundamentalism, but not so clear in the way that IR has imported this issue. Mike Jürgensmeier, who has interviewed activists in radical religious political movements of all kinds, typically interviewed them in the prison after they had done what they thought they should do, 
uh, find that a recurring statement across all the major uh, religions is we are already at war. And in 1980, Osama bin Laden issued a fatwa a few months before his, to that point, biggest terror operation, the embassy bombings in East Africa. And he said, the world is at war. Not in the sense, now I'm declaring war, but we have already been attacked. Um, the American Middle East politics is, quote, a clear declaration of war against God, his messenger, and Muslims. And I think this is a quite basic, important argument that the defining difference between a traditionalist and the fundamentalist is the perception of faith being threatened in a radical sense by an enemy who has to take precedence over uh, the religious practice as such. This is very clear from the big fundamentalism research project with the six big volumes coming out in the 19th from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. The argument there is that a traditionalist who would say maybe religion is not doing as well as it should, and therefore we have to be more observant. We have to go to church, read the holy text, uh, pray more, make sure that the other people are as, as uh, observant, and so on. It's not a natural first answer to say, let's fly some airplanes into high buildings. It doesn't make immediate sense to say that's the way to say religion. The first and natural answer would be a religious reply if religion is not doing well enough. That's a traditionalist answer. But why is it that the fundamentalists can read the other conclusion? Well, that's because the threat is so urgent and immediate that it has to take precedence. And therefore, the fundamentalist would say the traditionalist is really a traitor because he's not willing to do what is necessary in the situation. He doesn't stand up to the threat on the radical nature of it. Therefore, it's noticeable why how Bin Laden and, and his uh, kind of people are making a hybrid of a criticism of modernity and adapting modernity, which is quite natural if you're facing a strong enemy, then you have to adopt the instruments. As uh, Clausewitz say, in, in war, the two sides write the law for one another. If you are in a war, you can't do what you like to do. You do what you have to do. You have to use the necessary instruments to be strong enough. And therefore, again, it makes sense that the people who did 9-11 and things like that are not people who have been through a very thorough religious schooling. They're typically engineers and other people with technical knowledge. First, of course, that comes in handy for some of the things they have to do. But secondly, it's also the ideology. It's an ideology of the instruments, of the necessary instruments in order to deal with that. It's not about particularly sophisticated theology. Typically, fundamentalist movements are not more religious. It's not a particular strand. It's not a not something you can pin down as a specific theological variation. It's typically those who say the situation is so threatening that we have to take extreme action to defend the faith. So it's really the political means that define fundamentalism rather than their particular religious process. One illustration of that... Uh, can be found in uh, opinion polls. Uh, no, I think I'll, I'll wait a minute about that. Um, some people will probably object to this and say Bin Laden and those people actually refer to a crusade and depict the threat as being our religion. And the, Bin Laden's favorite phrase for us is the Zionist Crusader Alliance. Uh, so that might seem like it's religion against religion. But 
Still, the argument is not that we are out there trying to spread our religion, and that's the problem. That's very different from the religious wars and from the Crusades. It's not one side out trying to spread its religion, struggling with the other side, coming with its religion. The picture is that we have a particularly devious strategy of favoring Christianity, which is to spread decadence and secularism as a way to undermine Islam. So whatever might be the ultimate argument that it's because we're Christians, the immediate threat is anti-religion. It's anti-religion that we are outspreading to undermine uh, Islam. Then this might ultimately be because we are Christians. It shows quite interestingly in an opinion poll done by the Pew Global Attitudes Project, which asks whether the U.S. <coughs> is too religious or not religious enough. Europeans overwhelmingly answer that the U.S. is too religious. Americans, with 58% to 21, answer that the U.S. is not religious enough. <coughs> People in the Middle East and in Muslim countries answer that the U.S. is not religious enough. We're quite strong, again, 65% to 10 for the other one. In Jordan, it's 95% saying it's not religious enough and 0% saying it's too religious. Uh, so the view is not that because Americans are so Christian, they are in conflict with us Muslims. It's because Americans are so anti-religious that they become a threat to us. I think this is important, and I think there's a reason why we don't get it, because the way the press reports about this is typically to present things as wars of religion. It's just like the ethnic conflicts of the 90s. As soon as the press had learned that there's something called nationalism and ethnic Christianity, whenever they see a conflict, they'll go and check and see if the parties have different ethnic origins and say, oh, yeah, they do, this is an ethnic conflict, without looking at what people were really fighting for. And they're doing the same nowadays. As soon as you have a conflict, Sudan, wherever, oh, do the parties have different religions? Oh, this is a religious conflict. So we get this picture of, and then the historical memory of the religious war saying it must be, could be because part, people are too religious. Those who are too religious on one side fight against those who are too religious on the other side. That's a very comfortable image for the secularists because then the answer to that, of course, is you should be less religious or you should be able to separate religion from politics. So we know the answer to this secularism. But if the conflict constellation is the other one, not religion against religion, but radical religion against radical secularism, well, then it actually means that we are one party to the conflict. We are one half of the conflict, which is somewhat more challenging, especially since we have the arrogance to say that the framework to analyze the whole thing should be secularism. That's a kind of neutral frame, which is, with that conflict constellation, just about as smart as saying during the Cold War that we have this conflict, maybe communism should be the neutral framework to understand the conflict in, uh, when it's really one side of it. So my worry, and then again comes this European angle, uh, is the kind of self-righteousness and blindness of presenting secularism as some kind of neutral context when it really is what one party fears most. The problem is that the doctrine of separation of religion and politics is very often seen as a kind of simple thing that as if uh, religion and politics are something given there are religion, there are politics, and at some point in the 16th or 17th century, a clever guy in Europe came around and said, hmm, maybe we should separate those two things, and then started uh, a happy situation where people could be more uh, safe and therefore more productive, and we had growth and modernity and everything good came from that. But the problem is it's not given that there is such a thing as religion and such a thing as politics. These categories were invented at that time. It was part of 
the modern project of building the modern sovereign state to invent the category of religion in order to separate it away so the state could control the political arena and put religion into the heads of people as a private matter and so on. So I'm not saying that is bad. It might be a good way to organize society, but these are not neutral terms that you can use in any situation and say this is religion, this is politics. It's part of the way, it's an ultra-political question of the way we have structured the world to structure it through categories like religion and politics and thereby the question of separating religion and politics. And the problem, of course, is that this idea of religion as something that ultimately should be private goes more easily with some religions than others. It goes most easily with uh, Protestantism, not that all Protestants likes it, but it goes easily with Protestantism. Catholics only takes a few centuries to get around to it as well. Uh, but there are other religions where it's actually pretty difficult if the essence of the religion is something collective and public and so on to say that religion should be a private thing in your own head. One would think that with a challenge like this, with secularism being part of the conflict, we would start to critically examine the concept of secularism. But as I see it at the moment, the trend is the opposite. Especially in Europe, the tendency is to make secularism increasingly doctrinaire and a principle that we are fighting for. You hear more and more often in Europe, secularism as the principle we have to stand up for. This is the line we have to defend. This is where everything is at stake. We fight for secularism or everything is lost. And it's a way to sound very inclusive and very tolerant. We accept all religions. You can all come here. Uh, but religion is okay as long as it's private. All religions are acceptable as long as they don't really play a role. And people must make, be very clear that they put democracy before the Quran and so on. And the problem, of course, is that by stating things this way, it sounds tolerant, but actually you stand exactly on the sore point of the other side. And therefore, religious security policy is not only something about what we do in Iraq, it's also a question about how we rearrange ourselves. If we want to organize ourselves in a way where we present a self-image of being radically secularist. Um, the problem here is, uh, there are several problems. One is that it sounds like a clear, clear principle, like the kind of the line in the sand we are going to defend. But really, it's a line in water in the sense that it's not very clear where the line is. As soon as you start checking several countries, you can see that France and the US and UK and Poland and Syria and all kinds of countries say they are secularists. And they all have some kind of distinction between religion and politics. But it's drawn in very different places and according to very different logics. So secularism is not a very simple thing. But you treat it like that as long as you have only national debates about it. And the problem with having it as a principle is that it becomes this kind of either-or question. And ironically, the secularists and the Islamists can agree on that. The secularists will say, you have to separate religion and politics. The Islamists have agreed to those terms of debate and saying, we are against the separation, which is a way of avoiding a long, scholarly, sophisticated discussion within Islam of the relationship in religion and politics, and shortcut the whole thing by saying, we are opposed to the secularist position of division. We want to unite them. So you avoid the whole conflict and the whole issue by just being the opposite of the secularist position. So the secularists and the Islamists can agree this is an either-or question, as if there was a simple principle. Whereas as soon as you break it up into a complicated question of religion and politics, there's much more room of maneuver. I think I'll skip some of this. Um, especially in, in Europe, 
the whole issue of whether you're allowed to make religious arguments in politics or not kind of uh, blocks the whole debate. If you have in Denmark a local imam who says that it's okay for women in Nigeria to be stoned, the reaction of the general public would not to be to stand up and argue why stoning women is a bad thing and why we shouldn't accept it. They would say, oh, you see, that's what happened when you mix religion and politics. You shouldn't argue like that. So you address the form instead of the content. And what are you saying to this guy? The message you send is really, whatever you think and however you reach a conclusion, you have to dress up your argument differently. And I'm not sure that's a good recipe for democratic uh, discussion of saying, however you reach your conclusion, better dress it up in another kind of argument because you're not allowed to argue like that. Probably it would be better that people present the reasons how they reach their conclusion, and we discussed that. But at the moment, at least in Europe, it's quite clear that it uh, becomes an issue about this division itself. There have been some high-profile issues uh, in recent years where secularism has become more and more a principle. There was the uh, Bocellioni's candidacy as EU commissioner, and maybe most revealing the question of Turkey possibly adopting a law against adultery. In that case, I think, was very revealing. There was this suggestion in Turkey, who is ruled by a party which is kind of post-Islamist uh, and a little hard to interpret, coming up with this law against ad adultery. And there was universal rejection in Europe, saying, if you do this, you cannot become a member of the European Union. What is most striking is that no one argued really why. And that shows you how self-evident it was that you didn't have to say why. But really, why is it? Uh, is adultery defining for European identity? Well, some Americans might think so in the sense of Europe being this godless and so on. Uh, but the problem was really, uh, is, there, is, there human, is adultery a human right so that it violates uh, the Copenhagen criteria for becoming a European member? No, but really. So what, what was at stake? Really, the impression that this had to be something about Sharia. You couldn't prove it. There wasn't any sign of it. But it was assumed that this was a sign of religion influence in politics. Well, probably it was, because family laws in all countries probably are influenced by religion. I mean, where would you get your values for what a family is and what is good and bad and so on, if not with religious influence? Clearly, the family laws in all countries are influenced by religion. But it shows how you are willing to even make it a criteria for membership of the European Union not to do anything that looks like it's a case of religious influence on policy. So that was a case of Europe reconfirming the image of being radical, secularist, radical, anti-religious, which I think is part of the problem in the current situation. Uh, the final problem to mention here is the selectivity in doing things like this. Especially in Europe, it becomes clear that it only really hits the minority population. In a country like Denmark, with its dominant Lutheran population and so on, religion can slip in in many ways and no one notices. But as soon as it's the minority group that makes an argument, we say, oh, that's religion. You can't do that. So really, it sounds like a general principle, but really it's an excuse for going after the minority. That's slightly different in a situation where it might be the majority uh, population. Okay, I usually say something more about this because I'm arguing up against the 99.9% of the Danish population. I'm not going to do this at the moment. I'm just going to say that my point here is that problematizing secularism for ourselves and being more flexible about this and treating it not as a principle, but as a complex 
number of practical decisions that can be dealt with in many ways is, of course, not the solution to terrorism. You have to deal with terrorism at many levels. But it is part of the problem in the sense that if you take serious what people actually say themselves and thereby what is part of the recruiting and mobilization and so on, if this is the main enemy image, our anti-religiosity and our uh, uh, destructive attitude to the place of religion and society, it's actually a part of it. And then maybe more in Europe than in the U.S., because it's in Europe that most Muslims experience how are we treated by the West. I mean, there's an image of both what the West does on the macro scale in global affairs, but the fate of Muslims in society is not so much a question of what happens in the U.S., but how they're treated in Europe, where the immigrant groups are much bigger and significant. Then a lot of people would probably object to this by saying that... Um, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I think we'll wait for that. Um, that this seems out of touch with reality today, where we've had... Um, Bush and Blair as the leaders of the West, two clearly religious persons, probably um, more religious than any of their uh, predecessors for a long time in their respective countries. But I think it's striking still how restrained they have been in the way they link religion and politics. I mean, just an anecdote on Tony Blair. He's probably the most religious British leader in 100 years, and on March 20, 2003, he had to go on television to announce that the war in Iraq had started, and he had to explain why. He told his staff that he wanted to conclude his speech with the words, God bless you. His staff broke out in process. And Blair said, you're the most ungodly flogger I've ever... Uh, and his speechwriter, Peter Hyman, whose juries protested, ungodly, keep me out of this. And another one in the group protested and said, well, it's just not, just not the same God. Um, and Blair intervened and said, it is the same God. So he's not afraid of making strong religious political decisions. Uh, but he actually closed the actual speech he held with the somewhat less remarkable, thank you. So, I think it's clear that even those who are inclined to this can see why it wouldn't work in their situation. And if you look at Bush, I think people who have analyzed Bush's speech in, for looking for the religious terminology find that very often they are kind of double-coded, that a lot of there are kind of implicit hints by using implicit quotes from the Bible, using standard phrases that are particularly popular among born-against Christians, so they can say, oh, he's one of ours. This phrase is clearly an echo of this and that. And I wouldn't get it because I don't know those things, so I wouldn't notice it's there. So the kind of average audience wouldn't get it. They would hear the secularist argument, and the others would reconfirm that although he doesn't make that argument, he's really still one of ours, which shows that there's still limits to how you do it. Also, the religious argument for Bush is mostly made in the form of saying, therefore, we have to have a moral politics, but not making a specific link from any specific religious position and saying, therefore, I reach this political conclusion. And I think this... This, of course, is a long story, but I think it tells us something about the situation in the U.S. where the religious right, after all, is more of a protest movement with quite rather undefined aims rather than someone who is who are able to control politics and put forward another scheme. Uh, because this is about securitization, again, just on the domestic level, that the religious right is very much a negatively defined movement who has experienced the 20th century as a secularist, liberal uh, attacked through the courts and so on, on traditional life, and therefore know what they're against, but not really what they're for, and therefore don't really have a political religious program for how they want the country uh, to look. Um, and therefore, in some sense, they don't challenge the Constitution mostly. They wouldn't say that we have to have uh, a very different situation. They're just saying the Constitution has been misinterpreted to mean um, the, uh, 
a wall in a different sense than it was meant, and therefore it's actually possible to have different links and so on. So it's structurally a kind of secularist argument just by moving the boundary rather than it is an anti-secularist argument. And that brings me to my uh, uh, fifth point here, that I think the comparative study of secularism is really a very fruitful avenue. As I just hinted previously, it might look like secularism is a simple principle. Do you want to separate religion and politics or do you not separate them? And that's the way it's been discussed as long as we have our discussions in each our separate country. So you can have it in the UK, in Poland, in the US, in France, and so on. But as soon as you start to have the discussions connected, you can see that what is completely unacceptable in the US is totally acceptable in Denmark to have a state church. Uh, what is totally unacceptable in Denmark to bring in a religious argument in politics is totally unacceptable in France, and so on. So we are secularists. We all think of our secularists. It's the principle we define ourselves by, but it means very different things. You draw the line very differently. What is it to regulate? How is it separated? Who regulates? And so on. And I think this is politically, strategically, quite a fruitful research avenue because it makes the same point as a more philosophical deconstruction and genealogy would do. What I said previously about religion being a concept invented at a specific time is a rather abstract, difficult argument to make in public. Go out and tell the average population uh, that religion is not a given concept, it's something that has this, that particular genealogy, and read these books by Tal al-Assad. Uh, probably wouldn't work, but it's actually more compelling to say, well, look at this. You can actually make that distinction in very different ways. It's a, it's a flexible thing, so it's more helpful <coughs> also in the sense that it gives us a reservoir of ideas for how to deal with religion politics, to know the variation. So that's something I'm engaged in at the moment and some other people in, in Denmark, that comparative secularism, study the very different ways you do this in different countries, is helpful. The second um, research strategy at the moment that I'm working on is to push the securitization analysis a step further. What I've drawn on in this presentation is mainly the argument that through securitization analysis you can see that it's not religious wars, it's religion against secularism. The, set, the basic setup is this contrast between uh, fearing for religion or fearing against religion. But I think you can try to dig deeper and use securitization analysis combined with Indian smart uh, dimensions of the sacred and saying religion has different dimensions, faith, practice, doctrine, ritual, institution, depending on how you exactly you formulate it and go in and study exactly what is it and what difference does it make, what you mean when you defend religion, what side of religion you defend. So this is a kind of research agenda of trying to decompose the conflicts by getting a more precise picture of what dimension of religion is different. And one output of studying in more detail the conflict constellation would be to find out how dangerous is this conflict. Does it have the kind of Cold War self-reinforcing, self-closing uh, character, and I think it has. And my suggestion here would be it's revealing how both sides avoid actually trying to understand what the other fears for. If you look at the argument in, from especially George Bush and Tony Blair, it is really to say the Islamists hate us for our democracy, they hate our freedom. Very hard to find any evidence of that, that it really should be because they hate freedom. That is because we defend freedom and we don't like what they're doing, so it must be because they're against freedom. So it's really a way of saying you, we should only be concerned about our own values. They are the opposite of us. We shouldn't understand what they really worry about. And you find the same from the Islamists. They want to destroy Islam. Well, again, that might be how they see the effects. I don't believe that 
U.S. troops in Iraq or U.S. troops in Afghanistan and so on are because we want to destroy Islam. I think there are all kinds of reasons. It might be wrong and all kinds of things, but it's not because we have a policy of destroying Islam. So that's another way of kind of closing yourself in and avoiding understanding what the worries on the other side is. And that, I think, is a kind of Cold War structure where it becomes self-reinforcing and self-closing uh, and therefore has good potential of being a dynamic that runs for quite a long time, unfortunately. We see it in public debates by the kind of delegitimization of any question to what they really worry about. The only really legitimate arguments about the roots of terror, Islamic terrorism is to say either they're nihilist, whatever you, how you want to pronounce it, um, that's good enough to say they just love death and destruction, you can say that. Uh, and you can say they hate freedom and democracy, you can say that. Or you can say it's really a question of de development from the other side. But no, none of the side really want to go out and say it's about religion. They're both afraid of insulting someone, and they're also afraid of taking their motive serious and thereby legitimizing them. So there, I think we have a situation where if you study this in more detail, you can get the kind of constellation pattern and what makes it very different. And that leads us finally into back to the cartoons and the European-US side uh, and uh, the current situation. I think one aspect of this, what we learned by looking a little more at Europe and the cartoon story is the way the Europe, is, Europe is part of the picture. There's a tendency from the Middle East and from Islam to see U.S. as the kind of essence of the West. But really, there's a kind of pick-and-choose logic here that you look at Europe or the U.S., whatever confirms the enemy image best. Of course, it's the U.S. usually that invade you. Uh, so you, you look at the U.S. if it's about that. It's U.S. who's worst at supporting one-sidedly Israel. So you look at the U.S. for that. But who is it that mis and, and they mistreat your prisoners and all that? But who is it that mistreat immigrants? That's Europe. And who is it that are radically heavy-handed secularists and really want to deny religion totally? That's Europe again. So there's a kind of mix here which uh, you might actually write to break by showing the religiosity of the U.S. more. So that's a kind of ironic conclusion in a situation where a lot of liberal intelligentsia people in the U.S. would say there's too much religion. Well, actually, more religion from the U.S. might actually be helpful in, in breaking some of the, that picture. And let me end with the drawing again, uh, just to show you the ongoing conflict dynamics. This is one of the few reproductions of the drawing from a U.S. website. And on this website, from a conservative U.S. website, is reproduced, but you'll notice that a little, that some more text has been added here saying, we think, last reference, the guy who drew this particular time drawing is a coward who does not understand the seriousness of the Muslim threat to free speech because he didn't draw the prophet, but only Muhammad from sixth grade or uh, seventh grade in Valby. So I think the conflict is ongoing and the enemy image is present at all levels in this. So I think that is enough for now.
I think I'll take that one right away because it's, it's extremely central. It's part of what I, what I skipped, so there's a reason why you missed that one. Uh, should have been there if I had more time. Um, I think that this is absolutely central, and this is, of course, the tricky political theory discussion about a lot of this. I mean, first, I think we have to acknowledge that these are about different worldviews that are very difficult to reconcile. It's more easy to, in a sense, have this or that ideology vis-a-vis -vis each other, but there's a problem here of disagreement about the whole setting of what is included or not. So it's a very difficult discussion where it's not, it's not like you have a frame and then you have different players inside. You have players who define this, the scene differently. Uh, but it's, on the other hand, it's real. You have players who want to play on one set of rules and the players who want to play on another set of rules, and you have to deal with that even if it's illogical, it's real. Uh, but I think also in the terms you ask the question, there is a kind of enlightenment, uh, secularist, liberal assumption about the nature of politics and the nature of religion, assuming that religion is the kind of stubborn certainty and just sitting there with your book and everything stops, and politics is the kind of rational conversation and so on. And I think it misrepresents both sides. We often give the picture in these discussions of religion of politics being the rational conversation where we can all deal with each other's argument and so on. That's true in theory, but do we ever hear that argument? Is that what our politicians do? Is that the way things go? No. I mean, we all know that politics is not a rational conversation. It's not that, we say, oh, yeah, I'm convinced now I'll change my mind. I mean, that ne almost never happens. Uh, it's a kind of messy process of very different logic. You one name, your neighbor on one side will vote one way because of tax laws, and he thinks he'll get more money out of it. And your neighbor on the other side have an idealist argument about where society should go, and you have a different way of reaching conclusions. We reach conclusions in politics in very messy ways that we somehow just play out, even if it's not a rational conversation. And we know that. So the argument that religion is not rational enough is a very comfortable way for us to say we have a general rationality standard, religion just fails. But in practice, it's a specific ban against religion because we only hold up that criteria against religion. We don't ban all kind of arguments and say, that was not a logical argument, or you can't vote on which of the candidates you think looks most pretty, or whatever silly argument people might use. That kind of plays there. But what, so it's really a special ban on religion that we dress up as a rationality criteria. So my argument here is that we misrep misrepresent politics in order to keep religion out, okay. and we misrepresent religion in the sense of saying it's certainty but actually you can be religiously based and still have all kinds of disagreements because you have a book like Willis's book about uh, uh, God's politics, uh, why, the, why the right gets it wrong and why the left doesn't get it or whatever it's called, uh, arguing that why that is strange that the religious right has been able to conquer Christianity and support all kinds of policies because the way he reads the Bible, Jesus wasn't exactly pro-war or pro-injustice and whatever. Uh, so you can be on the religious left as well. So it's just to say that actually you have debates there as well. So the picture of it as kind of certainty is again 
misrepresentation. So I don't see why it couldn't interact. Thomas Banchap has a very interesting research project on some of this, saying, we discussed this very hypothetically, what would happen if we mix religion and politics? Very few research projects have studied actual cases where religious argument and, and secularist arguments interact. And he studies stem cell debates in France and the US and show how there is a de facto interaction that has been pretty healthy, where the rationalists run out of ways to deal with ethical questions and draw something from the religious and the other way around and so on. So I think there's a kind of artificial boundary by abstract categories, which you break, if you break it down, you can actually deal with it at a practical level. Do you want to get back on this? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but as long as people accept the, the conditions of the play, accept the play along the rules and not kill your opponent and things like that, then I don't mind what, however they reach the conclusions and however they're going to change or not change their mind. I live with one, lots of participants in a debate who are never going to change their mind for totally secular reasons, and they're still part of the game. So I think it's still important to kind of examine the basis of the way we judge that certain positions are not part of the debate. I think William Connolly, the, the American philosopher of political theory, had made a very good argument. That is, a he phrases it as a dynamic between pluralism and pluralization. That pluralism has the dilemma of always drawing the boundary of who can be included. That is a dilemma for a pluralist society where people have influence. In a totalitarian society, it doesn't matter too much who are part of it because they don't matter anyway. But in a democratic society, it actually matters who has a voice. So the more pluralist you are, the more strict the boundaries in some sense. And how do you draw the boundaries? Traditionally, in terms of reasonableness. Now, women can't vote. They can't be reasonable because they care too much about private matters. Okay, they cannot vote. Uh, or uh, people who don't make enough money can't vote. Well, maybe they cannot vote. So you change that boundary. And you have constantly to, to move that boundary out for society not to kind of uh, be fixed on a certain conception of pluralism. The most difficult part of that is religion. But religion, because religion is traditionally the other of reason, that our concept of reason is defined up against religion. So that's the most challenging part of this pluralization of pluralism. But I think that's a good reason why it's difficult. Alex? Oh, and then you.
poorly. Uh, I mean, that is really very, very difficult. Uh, I, I, I had a personal experience of struggling with, and then I was an external examiner on a thesis that was written on the basis of the Quran as kind of source of knowledge. And that is troubling for me, still, trying to accept that that should be kind of a authoritative source. So, I mean, sure, we have this sense that, that, that it's hard to accept that religious sources of knowledge count in academia. Uh, so I would say that tension will inevitably be there. And maybe the question is not so much really uh, the, the definition of social science, because it's probably it's part of the self-definition and can't be any other way. But maybe it's then the question of knowledge. And I think there are broader transformations in the knowledge society that speaks to this as well. I mean, some of the writings about knowledge society, Beck's writings about risk society and so on, argue that there's a kind of break of the link between science and knowledge. That we've been through a period where science in some way took the place of religion. That part of kicking out religion as the ultimate source was to move in science in that place. That science was what became the, the source for the state and democracy and so on. And increasingly today, we have a sense that uh, science cannot be unchallenged. With a lot of the problems with the risk society that science becomes too dangerous. That we do, they do things that we can't leave to the scientists, it's too dangerous. So we, we have this, what the sociologists of science call kind of politicization of science and scientification of politics at the same time. We blur those dividing lines. And I think uh, that has effects on this, that we have to, in this more mixed situation, accept religious knowledge interacting, whereas we previously assumed that you could have scientific knowledge as totally separate, and politics separate, and religion separate. We actually have to accept as science that we are actually negotiating across the boundaries, also scientific knowledge. Um, the sociology of science, Steve Fuller, talks about the secularization of science, not in the meaning of driving religion out of science, but removing science from the seat uh, that religion used to have. Uh, and I, I think there's something that might deal with it, but I actually agree that it's terribly difficult. No, no, they're very no, That's true. Uh, I mean, the reference object one, I think that the answer is simply to make it empirical. I mean, instead of like the way that, that it's been just discussed in structural realism, as a question of finding out whether um, a, a state insists by definition always on survival or sometimes not, or whether a state really wants power or survival or whatever, 
And a lot of security theory is also assuming that we have to find out what really are the objects. Is, is security only military or is security also environment? The securitization approach tries to make it empirical and makes it up to the actors. If society politically manages to say the whales are a security issue, they, they have to survive. If the whales go, the world will no longer be the place we want to be in and we can't be us anymore. Our whole meaning of us depends on the whales. Uh, well, then it's been securitized. If we say it would be nice, but it's not necessary, it's a different issue. So it's, it's open in that sense whether you construct the kind of basic assumption it has to survive. Historically, the nation has been seen as something that is not open to negotiation. The nation has to survive. You can't imagine the idea that it goes, or the state has to survive. And then environmentalists say there are various things in the environment has to survive. Whereas you can't securitize a firm and say, if this firm does not survive, it's unacceptable. Well, it's part of capitalism. You might survive or not, but you can't say, because we are about to go bankrupt, we will take it to the next. So the, the kind of first question always is, can you make it kind of a self-evident assumption as a starting point has to survive. But that's a political question. It's in the political process. The other one about the audience, I think you have to be right, but it has a lot to do with some of the things that classical literature and security point to, that is characteristic of security to have a kind of drama, a kind of urgency. I mean, some of the features that the classical realist theorists would point to are exactly part of it. It's very, that the environmental area is the most interesting here. Why has the environment only been kind of half securitized? because it's very difficult to securitize, to securitize things that happen slowly, where it's uncertain about what happens and so on. It's much more easy if you can say it's happening now, this is the agent and so on. All these qualities, clear agent, clear historical precedent, um, and so on makes it easier. So you can study empirically why it's more easy to construct certain issues than other issues. I don't know who came first here. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that as well when I, when I wrote about the Turkish case. I mean, the first thing would be, is it the substance of it saying adultery should be allowed? Probably not. The, 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 the second one is then we say it's a kind of state interference in family matters. But all societies have that. All societies have laws that regulate and influence family. It's just a question of where and how and so on. That doesn't make sense either. So I'm absolutely right that there was this American reaction. There was a very good editorial in the New York Times saying that Actually, all religions are against adultery. I mean, it's very hard to find religions, or major religions at least, but they don't favor it usually. So uh, there's nothing unique about Islam here or anything. Uh, but the, the interesting thing for me was, therefore, why did it become so easily defined in Europe as something unacceptable? And I, my, the only explanation I could get to 
was that there was this assumption, this is really Sharia, this is really an, an unacceptable link. And that tells us more about Europe than it tells us about Turkey. After all, Turkey is one of the most hardline secularist countries at some level, they very much adopted the French model and all that. Um, it tells us something about the current project of Europe, where I think Europe has for the last years been searching for new European values, European identity. Um, and one of the, you can read something like the, the joint articles that Habermas and Derrida did during the, the start of the Iraq war about Europe, US, and so on. And there's a kind of subtext of defining Europe up against the US. And how can you do that? You can do it by emphasizing the welfare state. You can do it by emphasizing um, international law as something the Europeans stand up for and the Americans don't. And the third is secularism. So it's very popular in Europe to say, really, it's religious war because it's, it's George Bush as one fundamentalist against Osama bin Laden and other fundamentalists. And Europe is the banner of secularism. So I think there is a, a trend at the moment where Europe, also having to do with the European Union project and identity and so on, uh, and the sense that the European Monetary Union is over, we need a new next, explicitly said, we need the next project, and we need to define something. Secularism becomes self-defining for you. That, I think, is very problematic, because in a situation where it's absolutely needed to start problematizing and reflecting on secularism, Europe is engaged in a project of making a kind of principle we want to stand up for, and we're not allowed to compromise at all. And that's the whole reason behind the cartoons. The cartoons were made because there was a fear that we were compromising. There was kind of fear of self-censorship and so on, that, that this was done in a, exactly to provoke, to show that we weren't self-censored and so on. So there's this sense at the moment that there are principles that have to be defended. So Europe is contributing its share to the escalation vis-a-vis Islamists because of features of the European state building project uh, at the moment. So that's why I think it happens in Europe. because it was seen as Sharia. It was assumed that the whole narrative saying the Islamists want to create an unacceptable relationship between politics and religion called Sharia, which is to make a religious law the law of the country. Christian Democrats are against that. Christian Democrats have another idea of how religion and politics has created. So there's an enemy image of a kind of religious politics in the Islamic world which has to be uh, fought. And this was seen as being the one that did this. So you can be a Christian Democrat and say I'm in favor of all these values, but again, as the whole theme here, most of the struggles are not about religion or about politics, but about the relationship between a religion and politics. How do you want the relationship between religion and politics? And according to this story, the post-Islamist or whatever semi-Islamist government in Turkey were trying to impose a kind of religion politics that we don't accept. I hope so. If I, were, if I were Richard John Newhouse, and mm -hmm. you put up a photograph of Serrano's piss spray instead of uh, Muhammad with the bomb in the service, I would be saying a lot of the same things you're saying. Um, your, this argument is actually quite congenial to arguments that Catholic intellectuals like Newhouse have been making for a long time, mm -hmm. which is that Habermas is wrong, you can enter the public, cell, or the public uh, realm and you can use particularistic language, you don't have to use universalistic language, and that others should nonetheless engage one that. Mm. I find that genuinely disturbing. 
because it's all, it seems, I mean, you sort of say, well, look, the, the Enlightenment project to sort of get us to the point where there's an open private place. I agree with that. And it seems to me that that's something that we should defend. I mean, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm surprised your sort of cynicism, or, or my perception of your cynicism, that, oh, the Europeans are defending secularism. Well, well good for them. I mean, that's my, no, honestly, I mean, it's interesting. Sure. I mean, my sense is that after, you know, after 150 years of the religious wars, I mean, it took a long time for the West to get to that point. Like you said yourself, the Catholic Church, a long time, and I grew up in the Catholic schooling. It took a long time for the Catholic Church to be comfortable with dealing with modernity. And, and you're, I'm surprised that you don't, what, respect that accomplishment more, for lack of a better word. No, generally it is. I mean, it seems, it gen seriously, I mean, no, you're, you're saying the kinds of things that, that people like Richard John Newhouse say, mm -hmm. and, and, I mean, I thought the whole point was to get to that point, right? That, that the whole idea was to, to privatize religion on purpose so that we can't speak to each other in language and tropes that are common and universal, right? That Habermas was correct, that this is how we interrelate to one another. We have to restrict this kind of language so we don't have these irreconcilable conflicts, like Dr. Schwaller said, right? Because once you bring God to the picture, then it becomes terribly irreconcilable, then conflicts become absolute, become zero-sum. I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm not really sure how you want to go and address Islamists in their own language, in a no. way that actually has carrying capacity that can sort of carry to others who are not hmm. Islamists. I, I, the, the, the liberal state is not anti-religious; it's a-religious, and it's important that there that those not be misunderstood. But that's and Newhouse misunderstands that, and so do the Islamists. And I'm concerned that you are sliding in that direction, reading secularism as an effort to eliminate religion, whereas I think it's better understood as an effort to privatize it. Or if not necessarily individualize it, at least put it into a private civil society. It can be social, not necessarily private or individual, but it has to be outside of the state. That gives you a lot of other room, though. Right? Civil but that's not the way you see it from the other side. There's a lot of room there. Yeah. Sorry, I'm done. But that's, that's one side of the picture. The point is, that's what I was trying to say to Mr. Randall. The problem is that this is a discussion not of kind of parallel positions where you agree on the terms. It's kind of a world worldviews that don't easily correspond to each other. So, I mean, even Habermas has come around in his last, last talk about this, of saying that this doesn't work. You can't make this privatization argument, because seen from the religious person, it is not fair. I mean, from the secular position, it's equal and fair. You're treating all religious equally, or at least treating them equally badly, in some sense, because they all have to stay out. Uh, but the problem is that seen from the religious point, it's not a balanced view of dealing with religious politics and secular politics. It's totally biased of saying secular arguments count, religious arguments don't count. So my personal view, as a religious person, we would say, cannot be addressed. I can't put them forward. What kind of democracy is that? If that's the way I reach my conclusion, shouldn't democracy mean I speak how I get to that position? Um, so I think Habermas has a very nice formulation of that of saying that the problem seen from the religious political position is both that it's impossible to make that argument. You can't make a kind of stripped down secular version of your religious argument if the, at your core, the way you reach the conclusion is based on religion. Uh, and also, uh, it's, uh, so it's, it kind of both hinders your political participation, but in some sense, it also limits your religion. Because it might be part of how you see what would be your true religious practice, that you can't forward it the way you want. So it's not as symmetrical as you make it. It's symmetrical as seen from within the secular position. But if you watch Darwin on the other side, it's totally unsymmetrical. And therefore you have to say, we have two positions here who disagree on what the disagreement is about. And the only way is to step back and be radically democratic and say, can't we let this play out in the public arena? Is that dangerous? We have assumed it's dangerous? I don't think so. 
I think there's a kind of strange perception that we will go on an immediate time travel to the 15th century if we do that and be back in the villages. I think it's more kind of historical progression that during the wars, to simplify history very dramatically, before secularism, you had wars of religion because everyone were religious, so it was one religion against another one. Then you get secularism as the major player. Then you would either have secularism against religion, or actually you had a secularist hegemony, meaning that religion was pushed underground. But that was also a very elitist society where the people didn't matter. 85% of the people in the world are religious, and the majority probably want religion more than politics. But in an elitist kind of democracy, you can hold people down. But increasingly, people in the third world don't buy secularism anymore. People in the US don't, and so on. So you have people who actually want to do things that they elite don't want. Then we have to be radically democratic and step back. Can we allow that? Yeah, we have some minimalist playing rules about not killing each other and uh, accepting the rules of the game, accepting the decisions that are reached and so on, that you have to protect minorities and certain things. But then, with those minimal rules, religion is now no worse than other players. So I, I think we can be inclusive there. I mean, there is this the kind of a, the, the rational choice uh, market version of in theory religion saying that the reason why religion is more dynamic, kind of the alternative to secularization theory, saying that the reason why religion is so dynamic in the US is exactly because there's a free market and therefore uh, there's more competition and the, relig the religions have to do better in order to compete and so on, whereas they get kind of uh, uh, complacent in, in a European situation where they're too secure and so on. Uh, and there, there might be something um, to that, and, but, but I think that the, the main challenge I think now is that state churches become kind of generally delegitimized. De I mean, it's very clear in my own country. I mean, Denmark has a very clear kind of state church construction. And it's coming under pressure from all kind of European lawmaking and so on, where it becomes very hard to justify it. And that again, come back to the comparative secularism one, that seen from the US as the most unacceptable thing to have. And seen from a Danish perspective, we are one of the most secularist countries in the world because we really keep religion out of politics, but we have a state church. That's not part of the question. That's another issue. Uh, but in an increasing globalization, we can't have separate games like that. Increasingly, we become influenced by rules that apply to someone else. And those rules come back, back to us, and we come under pressure to get rid of that state church. So I think we are getting away from that model because of the pressures uh, of Europeanization and globalization. You behind? Can we make that a um, Sure. Um, this is sort of, uh, I guess, along the lines of what Brandon and Alice were talking about. I think there were sort of two um, problems allowing religious views into the political dialogue um, on, on kind of a practical level that we face. And one is, it seems to me that there are pretty strong norms against criticizing religion as religion, and also that you have this, like Alice was saying, this claim to authority that isn't shared. So how do we have a debate where one side says, well, um, my position is this, and my position is this because the Bible says X, Y, and Z. You can have a dialogue within a Christian community about that. You can have a debate of, uh, um, among Christian theologians about gay rights, for example, where you can say, one side can say, well, the Bible says this, and the other side can say, no, I think the Bible this way. You can have this dialogue. 
No, I think there are two things to say to that. One is that you're absolutely right. Uh, that it's, it, there is a problem of that kind of argument because it doesn't speak to everyone. That's the reason why it's not too dangerous, I would say. Because it makes itself limiting. It's not very clever of a politician to make an argument that only speaks to 10% of the population or even one that only speaks to 60% of the population. You'd rather make one that connects to 100%. So that actually makes religious argument to some extent self-limiting. And therefore, in a lot of situations, the the suppression of religious politics is more dangerous than allowing religious politics. It wouldn't make a big difference to allow it in any way because you would only use it to a limited extent exactly for that reason. So that's one point, um, that, that's, that it doesn't work very well. Uh, and this, the second one is uh, to, to uh, um, that it's not so clear cut that, that there is no debate. And I think that was the Thomas Banter study of, of stem cell politics. That you have an issue like stem cell politics, which is very complicated. And the kind of narrow rationalist argument actually runs out of steam at a certain point. I mean, what, what's the meaning of life and so on? It's pretty difficult to deal with on the kind of narrow rationalist terms and so on. And you have religious arguments that also are open-ended because you have different possible ways to say And you actually, if you study this, and you study it in France and the US, find that they interact and inspire each other and run against each other and overlap and are on both sides and so on. So we can make a kind of abstract opposition of saying it would be so dangerous. But if we study how it goes on in practice, it works pretty well. And I think that since there are some important US lessons for Europe in the sense that the US has this endemic tension between religious politics and secularism. And it can seem sometimes like it's blowing up the place, uh, and uh, especially the fight over schools issues and so on. On the other hand, it works. I mean, it works in the sense that everyone is engaged and you can have one decision temporarily uh, to allow intelligent design, but then the school board that decides that it's kicked out the next time and so on. It's an ongoing process in this country of actually working with this irreconcilable uh, starting point, whereas in theory it's impossible it actually happens. Yeah, I think we probably should let Owen go. So. <laughs> I'll let you go. <laughs>